Trojan fans. It's time for another installment of the Trojan Blast Recruiting Podcast. We give you the inside scoop on everything about USC football recruiting from the experts who know what they're talking about. Which players have an offer, which ones don't, who the coaches like, and who our experts like. And now, here are your co-hosts for the Trojan Blast Recruiting Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher Ryan Abraham and uscfootball.com national recruiting analyst Gerard Martinez. Hello Trojan fans, welcome to the Peristyle Podcast on a Tuesday. Today we're going to talk some USC football recruiting, kind of wrap up USC's class of 2016, how the team finished, what Clay Helton did, the needs that were filled, all of that. We're going to talk with Gerard Martinez, uscfootball.com's national recruiting analyst, knows everything that's going on with USC recruiting already starting on 2017. But we wanted, like I said, put a bow on the class of 2016, talk about that class. You guys had a bunch of questions you sent in. So we're going to try to get to all of them. And if you have any questions for us for future podcasts, the email is podcast at uscfootball.com. Or you can call us a couple different ways. One is phone, 641 715-3900, extension 816-646, or just go to our website, peristylepodcast.com. You can leave a voicemail right there. Try to keep them brief, and we will play them on the air. we got a couple of them to play for you today. Um, Of course, itunes.com slash peristylepodcast. That's our permanent URL on iTunes. You can go there and subscribe. You can leave us some feedback. A five-star rating would always be nice. It helps propagate the show to other potential Trojan fans and other listeners. And without further ado, I wanted to bring in Gerard Martinez. You can follow him on Twitter at GMartLive. What is going on, Gerard? You hopefully got to catch your breath a little bit after signing day last week. I did not, but that was a heck of an intro, man. That was a mouthful. That was, uh, that was a podcast in and of itself. <laughs> Do what I can. You know, we, uh, I kind of write it down, but I, I kinda, <laughs> almost have it memorized by now, like all the stuff that you, we have to kind of go through. Just, you know, take care of the house cleaning stuff, Gerard. And, um, you know, I mentioned at the top about, uh, the impressive, uh, recruiting class from Clay Helton, the fin- the, the, how he finished strong. We talked, you know, maybe you want to discuss the last couple of signing days, USC has been money with Steve Sarkeesian, uh, closing on all the four and five star guys going pretty much undefeated. I think a hundred percent hit rate on the targets for the last day of the recruiting cycle. But for the most part, those were all local guys and, there was a really different task for Clay Helton. He had to try to close out on a lot of guys that were out of state and there was potential there. I mean, certainly there was potential Gerard for something to go wrong. It did not. And USC finished, you know, really strong. Were you kind of surprised at how USC was able to get the, all these guys from out of state to sign on the very last day? I wouldn't say surprised. Uh, certainly it was, what USC was lining up to do. And we had talked about it in previous podcasts leading up to signing day, knowing that that was what they were going to have to do. And really that was what they were positioned to do. Now, whether they did it or not was going to be the big question. And the uncertainty was there because obviously USC didn't have the greatest season. They didn't win their bowl game and you had some coaching turnover. And those things tend to, detract you a little bit from being able to have a lot of momentum going into signing day. So you know USC, uh, the staff themselves were confident going into signing day just because of the offers that were out there. And you know when, you know, plan B starts to take place, when there's a little bit of scrambling, when you see offers going out to positions or to new players locally, guys that uh, are a little more accessible maybe for USC. And that wasn't happening. So you knew there had to have been some type of confidence there and getting players like Jamel Cook, E.J. Price, those were two kids that we heard really early on, kind of late November into early December, USC was sort of circling the wagons on, and there was confidence that we were going to be able to land those players. But this being a new coaching staff, you really have to sort of read their read. Is this a coaching staff that knows because of whatever information that they are going to get those kids and that they're going to be able to sign five guys on signing day that are out-of-state recruits? Or do they think that they have a good beat on these kids and then don't be able to, they can't sign those guys? And we saw that, you know, in 2012 with USC under Lane Kiffin when they had a really bad season and there seemed to be a lot of confidence that they were still going to be able to land and really hold on to some commitments from out-of-state and they weren't able to and they were sort of left 
without those commitments, and, and the class ended up being something like 12 strong. USC couldn't do that this year. Um, it really hurt them in 2012. And so it was one of those things that now we know um, coming towards signing day, if this is, you know, 2017, that USC had a pretty good read in 2016, and they're going to be able to land those guys. So it's really our read on the coaching staff's read and not really knowing what this new coaching staff, um, you know, the confidence level, whether it matched up with reality. All right. Uh, well, we'll, we'll jump into the questions, Gerard, and then I think they cover a lot of the topics of, this USC recruiting class. And if we missed anybody we want to talk about, we can certainly insert those in there as well. Um, I'll start off. We have a voicemail question. It's not, well, I guess maybe it's not much of a question. It's kind of a statement and we'll get your thoughts on it. Here you go. Hi guys. Daniel out of uh, Los Angeles again. I love the podcast and everything that you do. I uh, just had a quick statement on the recruiting class. A great job um, for Clay Heldman bringing in those out of state guys, flipping the guy from Florida State. Um, the Oregon guy from Hawaii, um, really good job. A lot of recruiting sites have him at number eight. ESPN, their bias has him at number 10, of course, but overall, great job. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we all realize, you know, these star guys are really good, but if they don't develop on the field, it doesn't mean anything at all. A lot of these five star guys, some have peaked in high school, some unfortunately don't make it through college. I mean, all these guys are not going to end up in the NFL. So as long as USC develops the guys that they have and, um, bring out the best of them, like, that Pete Carroll era did, make them play better than what they thought they could, then that I believe they'll have a great job. Um, yeah, they lost them a few guys, but, I mean, hey, maybe these guys weren't as good as what we thought they were. We will see eventually on the field. As we all know, the game is played on the field, so if these guys show up and play, that's all that matters. But uh, fight on and great job from the recruiting class. Yeah, certainly a statement on the recruiting class and the the ability for this staff to close. And like you said, we've seen that last two years with Steve Sarkeesian's staff, and that carries over now with Clay Helton. Um, USC ended up getting five guys out of state of the seven signees that they had on signing day, and that's a, a big deal. And that's it's something that um, I think the best recruiting class is nationally, and you saw this with Alabama this past year. Most of those teams, they are waiting towards January to really make that big push towards having a big elite class. And USC used to do that with Pete Carroll, too. You know, they would have their 10, 8, 10 guys that they would have committed uh, by summer, early fall, and then it kind of was a lull for the season. And then you get into late November, and that's when it starts to pick up again. And once you get into January, it's really sort of hitting the reset button on the recruiting class, and a lot of it tends to have to do with how well you did during the season, how much momentum you have in your program, uh, how much positivity there is that that program is going in the right direction. And obviously with Pete Carroll, it became one of those things that every year they were contending for a national championship, and it really just depended on, okay, how much buzz is around the program, uh, how many guys are they going to be able to cherry pick from you know around the nation to be able to kind of top the class off. This was a different situation with Clay Helton because, like I said before, there was no momentum. USC was sort of flat-footed after that bowl game, and you kind of wondered, okay, they have the confidence that they're going to be able to close strong on signing day, but is that actually going to happen? And so you're able to get I mean, seven guys to commit on signing day. That's 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 usually reserved for the programs that are in you know the upper echelon of the top 25. Um, you know the Clemsons, Alabamas, uh, the teams that are playing there late you know in January. Uh, but USC was able to close strong like a like a team that had won you know their bowl game and won um, you know their 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 conference and, and is going up in the right direction. So. From that standpoint, certainly it's uh, encouraging for USC that uh, these kids all felt like uh, Clay Helton is the guy, that the program is headed in the right direction, that uh, the coaching staff there is the right coaching staff. And when you got kids coming from out of state, it's definitely about that certainty. You know, that's the big thing is, I've always said it, uncertainty kills out-of-state recruiting. And if there's a feeling like their coaching staff is not going to be there in the future, they're not going to be able to win games, there's just going to be some question marks there. Usually kids don't want to go across the country and find themselves in that situation. But this coach staff was able to sell the stability and that the program's going in the right direction. And so it'll be interesting to see if they're able to uh, actually, you know, put that into practice and USC is able to, to win the Pac-12 title or, or be able to get there to that point where they're playing in a big bowl game next year or the next two years. All right. Uh, thanks for that comment. Uh, voicemail. Let's go. We have a question from John. Uh, he's up in San Jose. 
up, they had the Super Bowl up in that area, uh, over the weekend. He says, was wondering if we could get the story about why Vellis Jones decided to decommit, then recommit the very next day to USC. Thanks for all the hard work that you and the staff put in. Fight on from John. We actually had a pretty involved feature story on Vellis Jones talking with his uncle Kyle, uh, who kind of helped him through the process and was one of his mentors through the process. And it was really just as simple as, you know, Valis had a lot of connections to Oklahoma. He felt he could play right away at Oklahoma. They lost Sterling Shepard. He draws a lot of comparisons as a player to Sterling Shepard. Um, he has family there in Oklahoma. It was a very easy choice for him to make. Uh, it was one of those things that I think he felt comfortable with the situation. And, again, with USC, you've got a new coaching staff. Uh, they lose a number of games. Um, you know, you're talking about a kid from a small town, Farallon, Alabama, and you're going to L.A., there's just uncertainty there. And I think that was really what was creeping into his head, and he felt like, you know, Oklahoma was just an easier choice for him to make. Um, but once he made that choice and he announced it on Twitter, he immediately felt he made a mistake. And it was just one of those gut feelings. When he pressed send and tweeted that tweet, he just felt in his gut that was the wrong decision. And he immediately talked with his parents and his uh, uncle about that decision and felt like it was wrong and didn't want to wait on it. It was one of those things where he could really have waited a week and made sure that he just felt like it was wrong. But because signing day was coming, he didn't want to leave Oklahoma out in a lurch. And so he felt like, you know, it's a mistake. Better to correct it immediately than wait on it. That would make it bigger, a bigger mistake. And so that was really why it was such a quick turnaround, 24 hours. Um, his parents and his family just felt like, look, it, if you don't feel like this is the right decision, correct it immediately. You know, don't sit there and wait on it or even go to Oklahoma and then two years from now want to transfer and feel like, okay, well, it was a mistake, but it was a mistake I made, so I was going to live through it. It was a mistake that he wanted to correct immediately because he knew uh, just that emphatically that it was the wrong move for him. So that, in a nutshell, is really what happened. Um, there wasn't anything crazy. There was no last minute, you know, somebody called him on the phone and changed his mind. It was really one of those things he called Oklahoma immediately after he tweeted it out and said, Coach, I, I think I made a mistake. He called Bob Stoops. He called um, uh, Lincoln Riley. Uh, he called the wide receivers coach and talked to them personally and said, you know, I, I, I think that uh, I made the wrong move and I think I want to go back to USC. They were disappointed, but certainly – they didn't want to take a commitment from a kid that didn't want to be there. And then he called uh, T. Martin and decided, you know, I, I think I do want to stay at USC and I do want to recommit. Um, is there a possibility that I could do that? And T. Martin was more than happy to be able to have him to still be a part of the class, uh, certainly a part of the receiver class where you've got five deep. He's a guy that brings speed, um, kind of a different type of player than those other receivers. And I think that, you know, for him, it was something that he felt comfortable with with USC. The big thing about USC is that he's kind of a pioneer within his family and kind of his area by going to USC and doing something very different. And, you know, you had the sort of comfort level with Oklahoma because it's, you know, small town. Um, he had family there. It just was one of those things where he, he just some certainty, some familiarity, but that's not really what Velas wanted to do, as his uncle explained. He wants to sort of do his own thing. You know, he wants to break from the mold, and he wants to make a mark, and he feels like Oklahoma, with USC, he feels like he can do that. And obviously, education-wise, there was a lot of uh, a push from his family to go to USC just because of the degree and feeling like that was going to be something that would help him even after football comparatively with Oklahoma, in their opinion. So uh, it was one of those things that it just, uh, it, I think it was just, how it happened with social media. This is something that we as adults, as grown folks that didn't grow up with social media have to sort of understand it's a different deal now. You know, when you and I were, Ryan, were, were going through high school and everything, we didn't have this ability to say something right or wrong and have thousands, if not, you know, even more people be able to see it right away and it's there, and it's out there, and you can't take it back necessarily. We had, a, you know, in the past, let's say if we're recruits, you talk to, you know, a dozen of your friends and family, and they're the ones who know about it. And there was no, 
you know, big newspaper that was going to put out the big article on it that was going to happen as quickly as Twitter could put out that word. And so now we have to realize we're in the day and age that, you know, these kids, they're kids and they can say things and it can go out immediately and it's a double-edged sword. It's positive to that. There's, you know, you can, you can say something and have it reach millions of people right away and then you can say something that you regret and it's still million, it, it reaching millions of people right away. And that's just sort of the age we live in and the kids kind of have to understand it and the adults around them have to understand it. And it, it will eventually, everybody will acclimate because these kids will become adults and become parents and they'll say, you know what, you can't do that because <laughs> I did that when I was younger and I made that mistake because I had Twitter. Their parents right now didn't go through that. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have Twitter. You and I didn't have Facebook and Twitter. So we look at it differently and it's sort of foreign to us. How could you go on Twitter and make that statement when you weren't 100% sure about that statement? Or why would you even make that statement via Twitter anyways? Why would you want to go through another means of doing it? Well, that's just because we never relate to it because we didn't do it as kids. So it's a different day and age, and we kind of have to uh, come to terms with that. All right, let's move on. Tarek had a question. He said, in your mind, is Connor Murphy a guy who can be a 3-4 defensive end and can Fatu uh, play nose guard? Yes and yes. I think Connor Murphy can certainly play defensive end in the 34. I think he's not going to be a stand-up rush-end outside linebacker type. It's 6'7", 250, and probably even bigger than that at this point. I don't think he's a guy that's going to be in a two-point stance. I think he'll be in a three-point stance. He'll be playing, you know, uh, uh, probably in that three technique. Um, kind of depends on how Clancy Pendergast wants to use that defensive line and their gap assignments, but I think he's a guy that's going to be more of a Leonard Williams type than he's going to be, uh, you know, Scott Felix or even Morgan Breslin. I think he's a little too big for that. And with uh, Josh Fatu, I think he's definitely a guy that could play over, you know, the nose, uh, one shade, um, quick, uh, definitely a powerful player, a guy that has really good feet, really good agility. Um, an interesting pickup, you know, on signing day. He was a guy that really came out of left field. We knew USC had been recruiting him, but certainly not to the point where they thought, you know, he would get a scholarship offer. Um, and, you know, that basically came on signing day. So he was sort of a plan B guy, but certainly, you know, a lot of uh, USC fans have been, have been, you know, chiming for this guy, this, 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 junior college defensive tackle, you know, why can't we recruit more defensive linemen that are junior college guys that you can plug in immediately? And certainly this year with USC losing four guys on the defensive line that have starting experience, you're talking about Greg Townsend, you're talking about Antoine Woods, you're talking about Claude Pellone, you're talking about um, Delvin Simmons. And you lose all those guys that have started games for USC at some point you like to have that maturity sort of injected into the lineup right away. And so you get that with Josh Fatu. And, and a guy that actually played linebacker at Long Beach Poly in high school. So certainly, you know, athleticism-wise, he's a guy that's going to be able to do some things. Uh, a good pickup, definitely a, a nice fallback plan B for USC to have. All right. We had uh, three of them from Bearsecutor. Uh, so we'll start. So we'll do kind of quick. I'll we'll, we'll do one at a time. Camp. He's talking about Keyshawn Camp. Why did he decommit a week or so before NLI day? And why didn't we really have an option lined up at defensive tackle slash nose tackle? Well, they did. We just talked about him, Josh Fatu. Uh, he decommitted and, and really I, I have to sort of put an, you know, an asterisk on this and, and let everybody know up front. This is more from the USC side of things in terms of this information. And so, you know, you kind of take it with a grain of salt and you know, hey, okay. This is a, a certain perspective, if you will. Uh, USC dropped Keyshawn Camp. Basically, stopped recruiting him um, like a committed guy uh, in late October, early November. And basically, just were not very high on his film. Just felt like his senior year, he wasn't playing really well. Now, personally, when I watch his senior highlights in his film, I see a guy that can play at USC. Uh, I see a pretty good player. Uh, but... Again, coming from that perspective, from the information I've got, USC backed off on him, and he kind of saw the writing on the wall and started kind of reaching out to other schools and seeing what other options he had. He ended up at Pitt. And so that in itself sort of reinforces a little bit of that feeling like maybe USC sort of went in another direction. He did have that scholarship offer from Ohio State, 
But from what I understand, Ohio State looked at him as a plan B from the get-go and ended up being not really an option for him uh, as they got somebody else that uh, was more of a priority recruit. Uh, so from that standpoint, he just ended up being a guy that USC felt um, they could go in another direction and get a better player. Now, whether they actually got that better player in Fatu or not, or whether Fatu was actually rated ahead of him, that's completely up to debate. I, I think my own interpretation what happened and again, this is me kind of reading the tea leaves and between the lines and all that kind of good stuff. I feel like what happened is USC went away from Keyshawn Camp. They felt like they had a shot at somebody better. Maybe it was Boss Tagaloa. Maybe it was Rashad Gary. Maybe it was one of those players that they felt like they could get somebody else. Then when that fell through, I think Josh Fatu was another guy. And at that point, I think the divide between they and Camp was probably too big for them to be able to get Camp back and then decided to go with Fatu. There's an argument to be made that maybe Fatu is a better player and a better fit for them right now. Again, talking about the maturity level, you're getting a guy that should be able to play almost right away, strength and and physically, whereas Keyshawn Camp may be a guy that has to take a red shirt, um, not as dominant as a player physically as a guy like Fatu right away. Uh, So, you know, again, it's it's sort of, you know, you kind of have to put a little bit of an asterisk on the information and kind of what you get. I don't like to just run with everything that somebody tells me, even when it's a good source. you got to sort of double-check and verify. And at this point, we really haven't gotten anything from, you know, Keyshawn Camp's side of the country that leads us to believe that that's not correct information. But then again, um, you know, maybe you just don't come across the right source that sort of fills you in on all the other stuff that was going on. Um, but uh, that's kind of the Keyshawn Camp story in a nutshell. And then you mentioned, he, you talked about the Fatu. That was his second point. His third point was, uh, Devin Asiasi. He said, going to Michigan at the last minute? Is there even a poly coach on staff there? How much negative recruiting from Tui was involved here? Uh, i.e., if we can't get him to Westwood with Boss, make sure he's playing as far away as possible. Those, that's from Bears Acuter. There could have been some of that there. I mean, these schools definitely do try to, uh, keep players from each other as much as they want to recruit players to their program. Uh, there's one of those things that if you feel like you're not going to get a player, uh, then it's like, okay, let's make sure that he's not going somewhere where we have to play against them. USC's done it in the past. Other schools do it as well. The only thing I would say about that with Tuiasa Sopo going to UCLA, I feel like UCLA felt they were going to get Devin Asiasi probably for for most of the duration of his recruitment. I don't know if they wanted to stop this kind of badmouth USC just to try to get him to go to Michigan. Usually when something like that happens, and I'll give you an example, maybe Donovan Warren. Donovan Warren was a defensive back in Long Beach Poly many years ago, uh, was the top cornerback in the West. He was a five-star recruit. And it was one of those things where it was USC, UCLA, and Michigan. And UCLA sort of early in the process, and I would say early, I mean, we're talking about probably, you know, September, October, they knew they were not going to get him. They were pretty much the, the third wheel there. He was just keeping UCLA in the, in the conversation out of respect, but they had no shot at him. So they actively started to work with Michigan to sort of get him away from USC because it's, hey, it's better off him not going to USC. If he's not coming here, better to get him going to Michigan where we don't have to play against him and have to see him than him going to USC. So that was one of those things where they sort of tag-teamed against USC. I don't know if that was really the case with Asiasi because I think UCLA felt legitimately, and they probably did have a good shot at him once Tui Asasopo went to UCLA and was recruiting both he and Boss. So I don't know how much time and effort was really put into negative recruiting against USC. I think the problem there was obviously USC did not have a great relationship with Boss and Asiasi outside of Tui. Once Tui left, that basically was the, the coach that had really the, the, the main contact and, and really knew the families and really had recruited uh, both of those boys for the longest time. Um, Clay Helton did have a, a, a good rapport with Devin Asiasi, but it's one of those things that he was not the position coach and he had not really recruited him specifically for, you know, more than a year. So it was one of those things that he was going back to when Clay Helton was coaching with Lane Kiffin and was actually the Bay Area recruiter under Lane Kiffin. That's how far back you're going. So yes, he liked Clay Helton. He spoke glowingly of Clay Helton when we uh, interviewed him at the U.S. Army All-American practices. That surprised us that how 
much he talked about Clay Houghton, and I think that's really what kept USC in it. That's what, you know, they were able to get USC, um, was able to get him on an official visit and, and, and get probably as close as they did. Um, and, and certainly, you know, Johnny Nansen helped with all that. But at the end of the day, they didn't really have anybody there that had recruited him um, for more than a month. I mean, Johnny Nansen took over that recruitment of both Boss Tagaloa and Dylan Asiasi, and basically it was like, you know, four or five weeks that uh, <laughs> that he had to try to build that rapport and try to recruit them. And truth be told, uh, that's just not a lot of time. And it doesn't matter what kind of poly connections you have. Uh, that's just tough to be able to put that on his shoulders. And a lot of people were kind of critical of Johnny Nansen as a recruiter because of that. He was supposed to be the guy that was kept on the staff, that would have those great poly connections and be able to help land a lot of poly players. He did that, obviously, with uh, with Vivai. Um, now, I have to say his name right this time because I evidently butchered it last time we talked about it, and we did the video uh, uh, update when he actually signed his letter of intent on signing day, and I was pronouncing his name wrong. It's Vivai Malpai, not Malapai. I was trying to be fancy with it, I guess. Uh, he He's a guy that, you know, came out of left field and ended up signing with USC. They flipped him from Oregon, you know, one of the top of the running back prospects on the West Coast. And that's a guy that, because Johnny Nansen recruits Hawaii and he was the island recruiter for USC, he had a relationship built up with Johnny Nansen. And that was a guy that Johnny Nansen, you know, had gone through the process with. Same thing with Josh Fatu. Josh Fatu was a guy that you had, uh, that Johnny Nansen had recruited. He, Johnny Nansen really recruits pretty much Long Beach. That's kind of like his area. He went to Long Beach, I think Jordan, um, in high school. And so he kind of has Long Beach, Long Beach Poly, Long Beach area. And obviously that would mean Josh Fatu was a guy that he recruited. So yeah, land Josh Fatu. So you see where he had the relationships built up over time. Johnny Nansen was able to land those players, but places like Utah and in the Bay Area, just because they're Polynesian players doesn't really make a big difference when you've only been really talking to those kids and communicating those those kids for a matter of weeks during the process. That's still going to be very difficult to be able to land those guys. So uh, that's kind of sort of the overview of how all that shook out and with USC and the De La Salle kids and just USC in general trying to recruit some of those other Polynesian players. They really went 0-4 on a lot of those guys, and it really wasn't, I think it's unfair to kind of put it all on Johnny Nansen because really at the end of the day you have to look at the lack of communication and relationship that was built up and how quickly he had to try to overcome a lot of those things in trying to bring those guys to SC. And and I think sometimes the Polynesian stuff, Gerard, gets a little overblown where you don't uh, – uh, every program in the country doesn't have a Polynesian coach on staff. that You don't – I mean, you have Polynesian players. It doesn't always work that way. But he's a tight – in the end of the day, he's playing tight end. What has Jim Harbaugh done over the years with tight ends? And he saw that up in Northern California when Harbaugh was at Stanford. And what has USC done with the tight end position? So I think – I talked to a source, and, and he told me that was the biggest factor. It's basically how Jim Harbaugh has used tight ends in the past, and that's something that was appealing to Devin. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and I would note, and I said this before, in the recruitment of Polynesian players – Recruiting is sort of a thing that you kind of have to break up in the different attributes and, and different aspects. You have the salesman part of it, and certainly, you know, when it comes down to the trust factor and the relationship and selling yourself as a coach and selling the situation, that's one thing. But it's also the identify, identification and evaluation of recruiting that you have to take into account. And I think with Johnny Nansen, where that comes into play for USC it's not so much, oh, there's a Polynesian coach and I relate to that guy, so I want to go to that school. It's not all about that. Sometimes it's also about the school being able to find those kids in areas. And, and, and a guy like Josh Fatu. I mean, if, if Josh ends up being a guy that is, is a great player at USC, it ends up being a guy that, you know, people are going to go, wow, you know, they found this diamond in the rough. Then you got to put that on Johnny Nansen finding him maybe more because of his connections in Long Beach um, and his Poly connections then it is just, oh, okay, well, he recruited him and the kid went there because, you know, he liked Johnny Nansen because Johnny Nansen is Samoan and Josh Fatu is Samoan, and that's the, that's the connection there. So, yeah, it's one of those things. You know, Johnny Nansen, his biggest get in the recruiting process of his coaching career was getting uh, Mike Upati up to, up to Utah. He found Mike Upati, and, were, you know, Mike Upati went to the same school as uh, Philly Moola, and everybody knew about Feely. I shouldn't say everybody. Feely was a three-star guy. He wasn't necessarily a big-time player. 
um, for, for USC coming in as a recruit. But obviously he's a guy who went and played in the NFL. So USC gets some brownie points for finding, you know, Philly Mola, but Johnny Nancy gets even more brownie points for finding Mike Potty and bringing him to old places, you, uh, uh, Idaho. I don't know if I said Utah, I mean Idaho, um, and, and getting him and he ends up being the guy that's still playing in the NFL as a Pro Bowl, uh, offensive guard. And so it's, it's also when you, when you want to start talking about whether, uh, there's value in, in, in having a coach that has sort of a unique, um, insight or tie into a community of one sort or another. It's not just about that relationship that he can build because he comes from that background. It's also about being able to kind of peer into that community and that, that demographic and be able to know and find players there because of the connections that they have. You, you know the people to trust that give you the right guidance into this is a guy, that's not a guy, that's a guy, hey, I got a kid who you really need to check out. Nobody's really looking at him, but this dude is for real because there's trust there and you just have those connections there. So it's it's a double-edged thing. It's a two-way street. It's all those kind of you know metaphors you throw out there when it comes to recruiting. There's more aspects to it than just selling the program and recruiting somebody in because you have a good relationship with them. All right, let's. Uh, we got another voicemail question for you. Here you go. Hi, guys. This is Chris. I uh, love the podcast. Uh, I have a question, actually, regarding one of the recruits. Uh, I have a friend who's a big Florida fan and says that E.J. Price has major red flags off the field. Wondering if you guys had any information on this. Uh, appreciate it, and I uh, love the show. Thanks. I can't speak to major red flags. Obviously, that's a subjective term. Uh, I have heard, you know, some maturity issues with E.J. Price and some questions about him um from you know people that cover that area um i think the one big advantage that usc has in in a situation like this uh first and foremost and this is something again usc fans have been just begging for and begging for and you know we need to get this we need to get this it's experience at that coaching position the fact that usc brings in a guy like neil callaway i think neil callaway has dealt with some situations in the past where a kid comes in and maybe he's immature. Maybe he has red flags. Maybe there's issues that he's dealt with. You feel some confidence as a USC fan that you have a coach at that position that has seen it all and has been a guy that not only has been an offensive line coach, not only has he been an offensive coordinator at major programs, this is a guy that actually was a head coach at UAB. So he's seen a lot of stuff and been in a, 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 a place of decision-making power at a lot of different programs. And that gives you some feeling like, you know what, you can bring in some guys that may have some issues, and there's going to be a mature, experienced coach there to be able to to, 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 to need this stuff out, to be able to just get this stuff, you know, kind of sorted out. If E.J. Price isn't the guy and he can't hack it, then that's the way it's going to be. But I think with a guy like Neil Callaway, you've got just some solid, straight-up, um, you know, experienced coach that's just – he's going to be able to handle that situation. And I think that's really a big a big point of, for, for this new coaching staff where USC fans can be really excited. You know, you're not bringing in a guy that uh, that just is, is kind of, you know, shooting from the hip. You know, USC had James Craig there for a while and very inexperienced, and it seemed like – you know, in terms of handling these type of situations, uh, it was going to be his first time handling that situation. Then you bring in a guy like Mike Summers on top of it. Mike Summers had plenty of experience, but then you had two offensive line coaches. You had this weird sort of ambiguous who's taking the lead here and, and, and you know, this overlap of philosophies. And then they bring in Bob Connolly, who had a lot of experience, just not a lot of good reviews in the places he had been. So Neil Calloway is a guy that, you know, you've seen some success from him in the past. And, again, he's been in a place of decision-making power where he's, he had to make some decisions. And he understands sort of from that standpoint, you know, I, I can bring in a guy that's really talented. But if this guy doesn't get it and he doesn't understand, you know, this is how we do things here, then 
I've got to make a decision. Is this, is this hurting the greater good for this offensive line by having this guy here? Uh, do we have to weed him out? Or can we work with this guy? And uh, you know what? I had a guy like this back in, in, in Alabama, you know, when I was offensive coordinator, offensive line coach. And, yeah, this is how we had to deal with this guy. You know, you just have that experience that I think it just it's so valuable. And especially at the offensive line, it's not just about coaching in-game seeing that the defense is running a certain type of scheme that's trying to confuse your offensive line. It's also about these off-field issues and being able to handle them as well. All right. Let's, uh, we got a quick question from Kiani. She's, uh, I don't know. Actually, I don't know if it's a boy or a girl. K-E-O-N-I. Hopefully I pronounced that right. Um, do you think that we are recruiting too much out of state when we have a lot of talent in state? Ooh, that's a short question, but um, but we know Gerard it, and his. <laughs> it's tough to answer that. I, I think USC definitely is better when they were recruiting kind of an eighty twenty in state. You know, I think if you're you really got the majority of your class in state, um, you go back to when USC's been very successful. Um, it's definitely been built on California players, and I think you want to cherry pick. This class, USC did a little more than cherry pick, you know, and certainly I think in future years, does USC want to be at a point where they have seven spots left open <laughs> on signing day and you're trying to fill a majority of those spots with out-of-state recruits? I don't think you really want to be in that position. Um, you know, maybe maybe this is a different philosophy and maybe this coaching staff can do it differently, but I think it definitely uh, it's it's a big gamble to be in that position. So, yeah, I think if uh, USC maybe does a little better, um, certainly regionally, maybe they recruit a little stronger with local players. You know, I think when you look at guys, you know, the guys from Utah, you look at Max Tapai, uh, you look at um, Lakey Fatu, you know, two guys that um, USC has missed out on, those are guys that you could probably get. And technically, they're out-of-state guys, but are they really out-of-state? You know, is Connor Murphy really an out-of-state guy? I think regionally USC has always been strong. You look at Arizona and Phoenix, almost like a suburb of Southern California at this point, Vegas, same thing. You get a guy from Bishop Gorman. Is it really like, Oh, this is big out of state recruit? No, not really. I think we're talking about out of region, you know, out of the time zone basically and going in and having to go to places like South Florida and get guys. I mean, USC gets two commits on signing day from South Florida, one from Keyshawn young, the wide receiver athlete really coming to USC, probably going to start out playing cornerback, uh, from uh, Miami Senior High School, a guy that's a three-star, but kind of, over, I think, underrated just with his athleticism. We've seen him in person. He's a dynamic playmaker. I mean, he's a guy that doesn't have the greatest hands in the world, but Florida State was really seriously going after him at the end, and a lot of people didn't know as a cornerback. So take the hands thing kind of out of the picture for him, and it, that's not necessarily an issue if you're playing defensive back, and you just look at the quickness, the explosiveness, the speed that he has, and pretty good size. He's a pretty strong, um, you know, well-built kid uh, at about, you know, 5'10 and a half, 5'11", but an explosive playmaker. And then you've got Jamal Cook, who's 6'4", 195, and a lot of USC fans immediately think T.J. McDonald, Taylor Mays, Darnell Bing, but he's really not of that mold. He's not a thumper. He's not that type of guy. Really, he's more, and maybe this is even maybe a little bit of a stretch, but a Brandon Browner type of guy. He's a guy that actually could end up playing more as a corner cover man as a safety than he will be a guy that's going to play in the box as a safety. We actually saw him at the Army All-American Bowl <laughs> practices, and uh, he got one-on-one uh, -on -one in a situation near the goal line with uh, Isaac Nada, the big tight end uh, for the East team, and kind of got run over. He's not a guy that's going to go out there and, and lay the wood a whole lot, um, maybe, you know, against uh, smaller receivers and guys that he obviously has, you know, a physical advantage over, uh, but he's not going to be a guy that's going to be, you know, going one-on-ones with tight ends and running backs and laying them out in the middle of the field. He's a guy that's really more known of his – cover skills and being 6'4", 195, uh, you don't think a guy with that type of height can move the way he can, uh, but he really has the ability to, to be in man coverage and be able to, got, to, to go against slot receivers and guys on the outside of the receivers too. So that's really a more exciting thing for USC because that's really what they need. They need some guys that can cover. And with only four returning quarterbacks, including uh, Dory Jackson, who plays both sides and is not really a full-time defensive back, 
they need some guys to be able to get on that outside and be able to cover one-on-one. So, yeah, USC is able to go into a place like Miami. That's really, really out of state. It's a place that you would figure USC would have more success with all the Florida players they've recruited in past years. They really haven't recruited Miami. It's been more Tampa, more kind of central Florida. This is the first real go into Miami. And, again, I've said it before, Kenyano Hudson is the guy that you got to thank for that, the administrative assistant who's you know kind of a South Florida recruiter that got put on the staff full-time because USC had so few full-time coaches. He went there on an in-home visit. He was the guy that was recruiting both those kids and is able to land them, and it opens up maybe a little bit of a door for USC to continue to recruit those kids. If you see some success with Pi Young, you see some success with Jamel Cook, then those kids are going to see that and they're going to want to keep coming to USC. And I think with Miami being a bigger city than a lot of these, you know, more rural areas in Florida and people who haven't been to Florida, a lot, Florida is more Alabama in a lot of areas than it is Miami, <laughs> you know, Orlando. There's not, there's some bigger cities in Florida and then there's a lot of very rural areas. So uh, when you go into the bigger cities, these kids are going to come in and they're not going to be scared away from, you know, the big bright lights of Los Angeles. So, very interesting. There's a, there's a little bit of a sub-story, sub-plot to USC going into Miami and getting a couple kids in this class. It could just be something that happened, and we won't necessarily see it happen again for a while. But if USC can kind of get their foot in the door there, it's a hell of an area to be able to get kids. And, and not just, you know, the highly touted four-star, five-star guys, but you can find some really, really good players if you're just looking hard enough uh, and that are three-star guys and end up being Sunday-type players in Miami. All right, let's go Jamal. He says, thank you guys for the work on the podcast covering the program. I was really encouraged with how the new staff finished on the recruiting trail. With the relative low number of defensive backs returning on the roster, particularly a cornerback next year, is there any talk of any position changes for guys like Akili Ross, maybe to corner, and maybe smaller linebackers like Quentin Powell moving to a box safety role like a Cam Chancellor and Coach Pendergast's 5-2 scheme. Seems like Ross's length would be an asset at corner in cover three and man-to-man technique. Thanks in advance for your comments, Jamal in San Diego. There hasn't been yet. Um, I think with the Kiwi Ross, there's definitely the feel of we just kind of want to see what he can do first, uh, and I think that's going to be spring ball. There's going to be some evaluation done in spring ball, and more so than we've seen the past couple of years with uh, USC just trying to sort of identify the self-evaluation, basically, is what it is of your own roster and kind of knowing what you have um, before you go forward in a fall camp and you really want to start seeing guys perform in certain positions. Uh, so I, we haven't heard a whole lot about that. And, and, you know, Quentin Powell, that's a good point. And I think that would have been more realistic maybe with the last staff, the potential of him being maybe more of a box safety type guy. Because um, we did see with Clancy Pendergast, uh, you saw kind of that weird quasi Dion Bailey position where he kind of was moved up um, by Lane Kiffin to play linebacker, and then they sort of had him there as sort of a nickel safety a little bit with Clancy Pendergast. So I, there's that potential there with him. With Quentin Powell, he was actually playing, if I recall, the will spot uh, with Clancy Pendergast in 2013. So he was technically an inside linebacker with that staff. And then the Steve Sarkeesian staff with Peter Sherman and Justin Wilcox, his defensive coordinator, they moved him to outside playing the Sam field linebacker position behind Sewell Cravens. And I understand sort of why the inclination would be to move him there because in high school he played basically the stand-up outside linebacker rush-in type. But the problem is he's 205 pounds, 210 pounds maybe now, um, you know, maybe he's even bigger now, but uh, one of those things where he just couldn't put on the weight and be a guy that could set the edge uh, as an outside linebacker. So I, I felt like he was more effective actually inside just because he was able to use his quickness. He was able to be a little more of a north-south type player. It's going to be interesting to see what this new staff does and whether Clancy Pendergast does want to get exotic and say, okay, you know what, let's actually move this guy back and, and, and make him a nickel safety and, and play more towards the line of scrimmage. So one thing I will say that's much different – the, maybe the biggest difference between Justin Wilcox and his philosophy and how he did things and his use of personnel as opposed to Clancy Pendergast. Clancy Pendergast wants to play near his line of scrimmage. He is not as 
focused on the back end as I think Wilcox was. Wilcox was more about we got to cover this way, we, our coverages have to be a certain way. They were much more exotic in how they did things. And, and you saw, you know, when USC kind of got simple and went with man coverage, you saw how they just, you know, molested UCLA and, and their passing game just basically playing man under. And so Wilcox is much more exotic in his back end than I think you're going to see with Clancy Pendergast. Clancy Pendergast wants to put guys in line of scrimmage. He wants to stop the run first and foremost, and he wants to be physical. And we still have to sort of see how that develops because obviously part of that equation in 2013 involved Ed Ergeron, and we know Ed Ergeron is a hell of a defensive line coach. So now you've got Kenichi Odizi there who's totally inexperienced, and this is his first full-time gig. Um, that's going to be the biggest question is whether they are still that kind of team that can be dominant at the line of scrimmage and really play their scheme at the line of scrimmage and let everything kind of sort of unfold from, you know, the front of the line back towards the secondary. All right. Uh, we got two more for you, Gerard, and we'll let you go. He said, I have always felt the recruiting information provided by scout is more accurate and definitely less geographically biased than ESPN's. This leads me to my question. ESPN ranks USC's recruiting class at 11th and UCLA's at 14th, while Scout rates UCLA's as 7th and USC's as 11th. Which, in your opinion, is the more accurate ranking and reflects the recruiting classes the best? Thanks from Bernie. Yeah, I think 14, it may be too low, but 7 is probably too high as well. I think maybe UCLA, with kind of the over-excess of players that they had, um, you're getting 30 in a class. Maybe they got a little more of a bump in the ratings because they were that, uh, they had that many guys. Um, really, if you look at it kind of historically, those big classes, you tend to have a lot of misses. Uh, USC is, is a great example. And I think they took 31 in 2011. And you just had guys on that roster that were, uh, they were, they were scouting players basically. <laughs> and there was some value in that obviously within the program and having guys, but you have a lot of attrition and, and guys don't pan out and they start to kind of fall through the cracks. And, and certainly I think you'll see that with the UCLA class. So really what you want to see is, you know, who are the top 20, you know, 22 guys in that class at most that are going to make the impact. And, and certainly UCLA got some good players. I mean, they got a really good linebacker class. Um, obviously they get Nikkei Warriors away from USC, who is their top rate cl- player in the class. And I think that's definitely a big position for them losing Miles Jack. You know, will Nikkei Warriors live up to that hype? Will he be as good as a Miles Jack? No, he won't be. Um, I could just tell you that right now. Uh, he's a good player. He's not as athletic as Miles Jack. And I really don't think he's the, the running back type of prospect that Miles Jack was. Miles Jack actually brought a lot of value to UCLA playing running back there and being sort of a, a, a short yardage back for them. And we've seen Nikkei Warriors play all over the field and do a lot, but he's just not that kind of athlete as a running back. Um, so from that standpoint, yeah, he's not going to be a Miles Jack type. So you lose a Miles Jack and you get a good player, Mikey Warriors, but I think definitely more of a, a linebacker and a Mike linebacker is that an inside linebacker. He's already 240 plus pounds. Um, they'll try to shed some weight off of him, but he'll be a guy that's going to probably play, uh, at that, at that, that height weight for probably the rest of his career. Um, you know, Boss Tagaloa, good player. Um, guy that I really liked for them was Chris Barnes. That was the other linebacker that they, they, they signed from, from, uh, Bakersfield, a guy that, uh, tremendous, um, coverage linebacker and, uh, a guy that, you know, committed to them early and USC kind of sort of wanted to try to get back in it with them, uh, but was just solid and a guy that knew he wanted to go to UCLA. And you like those type of players that know where they want to go and they're confident and they have that sort of determination and that focus of, Hey, this is what I'm doing. And they keep, you know, USC had one of those guys in Kerry Angeline, um, the big six, seven, 240 pound tight end, uh, from, uh, Exxon, uh, Pennsylvania at a position that they need guys at that position. And that's a guy from out of state that, you know, Notre Dame and Ohio State and all these other schools back there were trying to recruit him. And even with Steve Sarkeesian being fired and even with Marcus Duyasasopo, his position coach, leaving the UCLA, Kerry Angeline stayed solid. He knew what he wanted to do. He liked USC. He liked the situation there. He liked the offense. I'm going to USC. And, and it was all she wrote. And those kind of guys, they come in, they set their mind to something, and they follow through with it, and they tend to pan out to be very good players. So um, comparing USC's class to UCLA's class, I think USC definitely got – uh, probably a higher quality of player. I think they probably hit 
more in regards to the positions of need that they needed. I think UCLA got a lot of guys. You know, there's just some guys there that's like, hey, we need offensive linemen. Okay, we'll just recruit some guys and we'll get some some bodies in here. Maybe the biggest offensive lineman recruit that they actually get, which I don't think counts towards their class um, from a rating standpoint. I'm not really sure how the services do it. But Jake Rollerson was a guy that they got as a transfer from Texas who's going to be a center guard for them that can play right away. The other offensive linemen they got are not going to be guys that can play right away. They're redshirt guys. They're probably not playing until their redshirt sophomore years. Um, and, and with defensive line, you got Bob Tagaloa, who I'm, eh, I'm not as high on as probably other uh, others are uh, on the West Coast. Uh, but that's a guy that'll probably, you know, try to play for them early um, and, and be a guy that could, you know, make probably a, an impact to some extent. You know, defensive line sometimes just having some body, some talent to some extent can uh, can help you out a little bit. And they certainly need it because they've lost some guys up front and didn't really have much of rotation even last year. So yeah, do I? I think. The UCLA class, from the standpoint of scouts' perspective, is overrated. Yeah, it is. Um, do I think it's as low as 14? No, not really. Really, probably on par, kind of with USC's um, counting. You know that they had 30 as opposed to USC's 20. Um, so you're talking about 10 more commits. Uh, but as it all shakes out, you know, with quantity and quality, probably I would say UCLA is probably 12. Let's say that. So SC fans are happy, and and not saying they're 14 either. So there you go. Yeah, we try not to get into the math too much. And this this next question from Johnny C. I'll give some comments and let Gerard comment too. He wanted to know uh, what the class ranking would be if they added the blue shirts from that joined the team last year. Can you help me with the math? And uh, yeah, so I mean, basically, the reason USC had twenty is because of the five blue shirts counting. Uh, you know that they actually could play in 2015, but they count towards the class of 2016. It gets confusing kind of with the rankings of, of when they're coming in because they're all essentially walk-ons. They're not signees. Um, USC does have a blue shirt in this class, Michael Brown, but he's not considered a signee because he's, you know, he can't sign anything yet until the second day of fall camp. Um, but I think it would have, because USC's star ranking, average star ranking was so high, uh, 3.9, I believe, the highest of any team in the country. They had the most five stars on scout. Scouts rankings, and I, I think different services do it differently. They count your first 25 guys. So if you don't, you get points for the first 25 guys. So you're missing out on points if you only sign 24. In USC's case, they only signed 20. Um, so they're missing out on points for five guys. So still being at number 11 is pretty impressive. You could argue if scouts should change it to maybe 20 or 22 or something like that. But the way they do it right now is counting 25. So any of those five blue shirts added to this class would only move them up. And so certainly would be in the top 10. I think probably, you know, I haven't done all the math, but probably top eight. Uh, but really what's hurt, I think the, on the ESPN side from the last question, I think there is a regional bias and they, they, there's, they're, they, they don't rate West Coast guys as five stars. They don't rate them as high, um, that they do for scout. So I think that's kind of why those both programs were 11 and 14 in that case. For Scout, the reason USC was only 11 was mostly because it signed 20 players and not 25, and you're just missing out on points kind of from all that. But like Johnny C. asked, um, if USC did, you counted those blue shirts, they would have more points, and they would be closer to 25 guys, and then they would also uh, be higher up in the rankings. Yeah, how much, I, I do not know. And um, Now, USC doesn't have five blue shirts. Isn't that also counting Taylor McNamara, which is just a transfer that counts as an initial counter? He wasn't actually a blue shirt, was he? Right. He was. Uh, so he ended up counting as a blue shirt to get him into school. So he okay. transferred in, but you know they didn't add him until the second day of fall camp. But all of those guys were eligible to play right away. You know, Daniel um, Emmitorebe, uh, guy that came in. Yeah, he had to sit out because of a transfer rule, um, but he was actually on the team and could do scout team and all that kind of stuff, but he couldn't play in a game. Uh, you know, Chris Tibley, the uh, the punter, you know, he didn't get to play. He could have played, um, but did not. So, yeah, it's it's weird. I'm not – you know, I wouldn't worry about it all that much. I mean, I, it's pretty clear last year USC had the number one class for a reason, uh, and most of the services kind of did that. You know, USC's around 10, I would say. I mean, that, that's kind of what we talked about. And, you know, 8 to 10, 8 to 11, that's that's what all the services basically had USC in there. I, I think that kind of makes sense. And just because the formulas for for how you rank them are different, um, and sometimes you'll get dinged 
if you don't have enough players. And uh, USC only having 20, that's basically what the ding was from the scout rankings. And, and I've said this before, but it's always good to, to sort of, you know, mention it again for people. You really don't want to recruit 25-plus players in a class. You have too much turnover in your program if that's happening. You know, Pete Carroll was really aiming towards 18 to 20 guys per class and usually withholding a couple scholarship offers in that scenario for walk-ons. So you had a proven commodity there in a walk-on that you felt, okay, this is a guy we want to give a scholarship to. We'll wait till fall camp and we'll award whoever we feel from those preferred walk-ons can play here and can help us. And so, you know, again, when you're getting 30, there's going to be a lot of fluff there. There's going to be a lot of guys that just fall through the cracks for whatever reasons and aren't going to be big contributors to the class. Um, At least that's sort of the trend, sort of what tends to happen, you know, historically. Uh, we know with USC, you know, that, that class of, uh, I think it was 32 and then it ended up being 31 because Steve Dillon, uh, who was a defensive lineman out of Palmdale, didn't qualify. And they ended up getting, I think, like about 30 guys that ended up being on campus. And, you know, you had five guys, six guys in this class that were really just scout team players for USC. And at that point, that was okay for USC because USC was headed towards sanctions. And they had to try to get those numbers up so they could have practice. You know, that was just the, the – the bottom line was they did, they needed guys to be scout team players uh, in order to have functioning scrimmages and practices. So you had Dallas Kelly, David Garnett, um, you had a few different players there that just never really played at all for USC um, or contributed beyond just being practice players. Uh, for UCLA, it's a little different, obviously. They're recruiting guys, um, you know, and, and putting 30 on the roster. It's probably going to be questionable. You could debate whether that's a good idea, being that the 2017 class is much stronger uh, than the 2016 class. And so they're going to have less scholarships next year um, where, you know, you want to have as many scholarships as you can with the deeper class. But still, even with a deep class, you want to try to stay, you know, within that at least 25, if not even under that, um, because you're going to just miss on guys. You know, the, the, the error of margin increases the more you have uh, in, a, in a particular class. And so, Really, most most programs are usually trying to shoot for you know 18 to 20 guys um, because that means you're you know you're getting your juniors that are NFL eligible back and those guys are always going to be uh, a bigger part of your program uh, than bringing in any kind of freshman. Quite frankly, even the big impact guys, um, you ask a coach, hey, would you rather have this guy for another year um, that you know is going to be an All-American and going to be playing in the NFL for next season, or would you rather you know kind of uh, uh, make a wish and, and hope this five-star guy that you bring in um, for the next, you know, three years is going to be the guy that, that they'll get you that championship type of thing. You know, the proven commodity is always going to win in in that situation. All right. Well, I think that's uh we can put a bow, I think now on the class of 2016 for USC Gerard, lots of questions, lots of comments, lots of analysis, lots of number crunching, but hopefully everyone enjoyed it. Uh, those guys are in uh, everybody signed. Big class coming up uh, for 2017 with 24 players uh, out of the 25 because of the one blue shirt we already mentioned. We're going to do some scholarship math uh, on the site as well. So go to uscfootball.com. Actually, later on Tuesday, I should have that up. We'll talk about the scholarship chart, where USC lies, how many num- what the numbers are, and all of that. So I'll have a story on all that coming up later. Uh, but it looks like moving away from the sanctions, Gerard, maybe we won't be talking about them. Maybe, you know, one more year and USC can back up to 85 scholarships probably. Then we won't have to talk about sanctions anymore. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. I mean, I think 2016 was sort of if if USC, you know, couldn't – I think that 2012 season obviously put them back a bit. You know, that was kind of the year that if USC was able to go and win a national championship or or even get to the Rose Bowl as they were predicted to be because they were preseason number one in many polls – um, that would have probably set them ahead of the curve in terms of recruiting and quality players and sort of where they would be coming out of sanctions, but because they had that big kind of a swing and a miss losing the Sun Bowl, it sort of put them back a bit and they kind of put them behind sanctions. So now, you know, 2016 was sort of that's where everybody looked and saw before the sanctions really hit where USC was not going to be really back to full strength until you get to that 2016 season. Um, at this point, it looks like, Coming away from 2016, it kind of puts the sanctions in the rearview mirror, and uh, now it's just about USC getting the right players and the right coaches and and being able to produce on the field. And to put a bow on the class, uh, as you said, you kind of 
bring the scholarship numbers, you know, moving forward um, into uh, into view with the scholarship distribution chart. Uh, we'll also have class grades coming out this week and kind of break down this class even further, um, getting into individual players and sort of the the, the team needs and, and kind of what fit and what didn't fit and trying to get into a little more nuance. So look forward to that on the site as well. All right. Well, Gerard, great stuff. Thanks for coming on. Make sure you follow him on Twitter at GMart. Live, I'm Ryan Abraham. You can follow me on Twitter at Inside Troy. Of course, all the information you need is up on uscfootball.com. So hope you guys enjoyed the show, and we will talk to you next time. Welcome back to the show, folks. We're downtown today looking for small business owners. Here's one now. Excuse me, who's handling the marketing for your business? Marketing? My nephew did our Facebook page and the website, but I didn't really see results. I'm just too busy trying to build my business to focus on that stuff. Maybe I have to hire a professional. Well, did you know Circle Marketing's entire team of marketing experts can help you grow your business? Really? But can Circle Marketing handle my social media updates? Yes. New website design? Yep. Online advertising? Sure thing. Make a professional video? Oh, yeah. Help me with marketing strategy? Absolutely. Can they walk my dog, Harriet? Um, no, that's not marketing. Oh, okay. Well, we were on a roll there. So where can I find more information about Circle Marketing? That's easy. Go to circlemarketing.com. When you're ready to hire a professional, full-service marketing company, contact Circle Marketing. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. Don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your smartphone or tablet for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store.